0: Is a, of course, a song we sing at Christmas. It is also a song, though, that, that points to Jesus' second coming as much as his first. When we think of the, the cry of our hearts that no more would sin and sorrows uh, grow or thorns infest the ground, he comes to make his blessings flow far as the curse is found. And that curse is reflected in the things that I prayed for earlier, the uh, things like tornadoes, things like destruction and death and grief and sorrow and pain. And there will be a day that He comes to remove every, uh, every kind of uh, trace of the curse that is on this world because of sin, but He had to come first to pay the price for our salvation that we could be forgiven, but it's always in view to that great uh, glory of His forever reign. Uh, I hope you will join me this morning as we continue through Matthew uh, chapter 2. Actually, we're beginning Matthew chapter 2 this morning. We've been working our way through Matthew's uh, telling of the Christmas story. Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 through 12 will be our text today as we continue in our Advent series. uh, The King of Kings Salvation Brings. Katie has a cousin uh, who, with her husband, served for many years as missionaries in Lebanon. They're no longer in that country, but they uh, still work with uh, people from that region. And once, when he uh, he was in the process of learning Arabic, uh, his tutor, who was Muslim, naturally, asked him a surprising question, why do you worship the Christmas tree? Now, that was a surprising question, as you or uh, note there. Uh, this this missionary though responded wisely with a question. Well, why do you think we worship the tree? And this Lebanese man said, Well, you know, you you decorate it, you put gifts under it, you eat and and uh, celebrate around it. We just thought that was a form of, of worship. Now. As if you go to another country, you know different cultures often misunderstand one another, but, but that one was a, a real shocker. He didn't see that one coming. And I'm going to assume this morning that you folks are not uh, worshiping uh, at the Christmas tree. And it, while it might be worthwhile to understand more of the background and the history behind some of our traditions, what, what was the meaning? What was the symbolism in, in all of that? Why do we bring a tree into the house and light it? Um, even more important... And learning some of that history and tradition is to get clear on who or, well, who it is that we do worship at Christmas. Uh, today's episode, if you will, in the original Christmas story is about worship, and surprisingly, it's about worship that comes from foreigners. People who you wouldn't expect to know much at all about the God of the Bible— Uh, and probably, likely had some things very wrong about who he was and what he came for. But they had found the Messiah that God had sent, and they did not miss their opportunity to bow before the king. So we're looking at the story of the journey of the wise men, and it could very well be a guide for you in your journey today. So I would invite you to follow along as I read Matthew 2, verses 1 through 12. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. This is God's word, and here is our theme for this morning. The king born in Bethlehem deserves the world's worship and yours. The king born in Bethlehem deserves the world's worship and yours. We'll see this in the varied response of different people in this story, but if we're really paying attention to this book and what it's trying to tell us, what it's trying to draw from us, our response matters too. So, part one. Where is the king? Uh, To find the promised Messiah, look beyond the signs to the scriptures. Most of us are, are very familiar with the Christmas story as told by Luke, uh, famously uh, recited by Linus uh, in the Charlie Brown Christmas special. Maybe you're more familiar with that than the Bible. I don't know of the, who we have out here today. Um, it, the, that story, of course, includes the, the night of Jesus' birth and with the shepherds and the, the angels and, and all that story we're, that we're very familiar with. Uh, Matthew doesn't tell us about any of that. He barely mentions Jesus' birthday at all. I mean, we, last week we saw Joseph uh, coming to grips with what the angel told him that the child Mary was carrying was a miracle baby, and then just ends briefly. You can see there, if you have your Bible open, he, he just the child was born, and they called his name Jesus. Uh, this chapter then begins sometime later, verse one after Jesus was born. So this is where I'm obliged to tell you, so no, the wise men were not there at the manger with the shepherds. Our nativity scenes are a bit of a collage. That's okay. Um, But even though Matthew fills out uh, a different part of the picture than the Gospel of Luke, he and Luke agree Jesus was born in Bethlehem. Okay, and that location is the big question here for everyone in this passage. Wise men from the east come to Jerusalem. Where is the new king? Herod looks to his Bible scholars. Hey, do you guys know where the Messiah was to be born? The prophet says, Bethlehem. Herod sends him to Bethlehem. Find him and then tell me. The drama centers around the question, but, but pay attention to these different people that are involved. First person mentioned after Jesus is Herod the king. And first in terms of a time frame for Jesus' birth in the days of Herod the king, and then of course he becomes a person involved in the story. Herod ruled in Judea uh, as a province of the Roman Empire at this time, so he he was appointed by uh, Rome to rule in this region in about 40 BC, and he was he was famous for his building projects, amphitheaters and hippodromes and fortresses, and his his own opulent palace in Jerusalem, as well as a magnificently uh, expanded version of the Great Temple in Jerusalem. Uh, but even with all that, many Jews uh, of his day resented him as the leader, partly because he was only half Jewish. Uh, and because he was often brutal with his political opponents, he even had one of his wives killed and his mother-in-law for political reasons, and executed a son who had tried to poison him. He's, you know, He was much loved and a really nice guy, uh, clearly. So, but, but really, overall, he's a, a crafty politician. He's an effective administrator. He's a skillful builder and a ruthless ruler. He's a king, but not sovereign not just, and not a son of David. There's no way he's the king that God had promised, and everybody knows it. Enter the wise men, our second group of people in this story. we got Herod, we've got the wise men. Who are they? Maybe if you're looking at your Bible here, the one I'm looking at, the English version I'm using, is, has a footnote here, Greek, magi, uh, and you may be familiar with that term. Uh, it is, happens to be the word from which we get the word magician, which is a good opportunity to say just every, that doesn't mean that everything that we think of as in a magician gets then imported back into what they thought it meant. He was not, not abracadabra, not an illusionist, not an entertainer, um, these men were part of a tradition going back centuries before this time, uh, before the time of Christ, originating in the cultures of Babylonia and Persia. Uh, they were scholars who did look at the stars, kind of a mix of astronomy and astrology though. They, would, they knew the course of the stars, they interpreted them as signs, and then with that uh, specialized knowledge, they would serve as royal advisors, so you can see this in the Old Testament book of Daniel. And, and really, Daniel seems to, to become one of those magi. He joins their ranks based on his God-given ability to interpret dreams. But what we see here in this story, centuries later, is typical for magi, responding to some kind of celestial event uh, as a sign of a royal birth. And they're coming to acknowledge what they believe is the prince, the heir, the future king. Now, notice at this point the text does not say that the star guided them to Jerusalem. They saw the star when it rose. They interpreted it as a sign for Israel and then, well, as the capital, the location of the royal palace, Jerusalem was the natural place for them to go. But they don't know at this point where he is. They've just got a, a, a general sense of where they're they're headed. Now, when the news of their quest reaches Herod, what what does he do? Uh, what, does he say, hey, you know, sorry, wise guys, uh, no, no false alarm, no new kings here. I mean, I think I would know if the missus and I had a, had a new baby. Maybe you should invent the telescope and, you know, look again. No. Verse 3 says, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And we cannot easily understand, of course, why Herod would be troubled. Is, is there someone outside my family who has a claim to my throne? And all Jerusalem being troubled with him might refer to something like, well, his entire administration, Um, you know, all of Washington troubled when a a candidate from the different party gets elected. Well, except here, they could not just lose their jobs. I mean, they could lose their heads maybe, you know, if there was some kind of revolution that was about to happen. Or if uh, the whole city fearing the, the fallout, if Herod decides to go on a rampage, decides to clean house in order to protect his position. Verse 4 shows that Herod had arrived at a very specific conclusion. Okay, they're looking for a king. I don't, I don't have a new king in my family. This must be the coming of Messiah. You see that in verse 4? Assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ, the Messiah, was to be born. That's, that's, he jumps to that conclusion. If there is someone outside my family who has a claim to my throne, then it Could it be Messiah? Now, Herod is just as interested in the location of this king. Where is the king? Claiming to have the same desire as the Magi to worship him. That's what they said they want to do, verse 2. That's what he says he wants to do, verse 8. But his intentions are very different. We'll see that even clearer next week. But that troubled reaction is just the first hint of foreboding, uh, the bigger trouble that is yet to come. Where is this king? And here we have then one last, uh, in our cast of characters, one last group. And they become an interesting counterpart to the, these foreign visitors because uh, the, these, the, the chief priests and scribes that, that uh, Herod assembles, these are the scholarly class of Judah, Herod's royal advisors. They, and they don't, but they don't look at the stars, they look at the scriptures, they, they know the answer to the question, where is the Christ to be born? They know the answer. They can, they can cite chapter and verse. Apparently, with you know, well, this is easy, right? Uh, Micah 5.2 is what they quote there. Bethlehem, the hometown of Israel's great King David, will be the birthplace of David's greater son, the long-awaited promised king, the anointed one. So, we're following the story. Now we have the answer to the big question that opens the story, where is the king? Bethlehem. But but before we we look at what they did with this information, consider a, just a moment more how they arrived at this truth. How do they understand where how did they find the king? The Magi had a vague expectation and a genuine interest in the new king, but no no real clear knowledge of how to find him beyond the star. The star got him going in the right direction, but they're still coming, asking, seeking, trying to find. And, and even though the star comes back into the story to to guide them to Jesus, to their great joy, this stop-off in Jerusalem, I think, points to their need for God's word. And ironically, the need for God's word of those who had it but didn't really use it. I mean, see, Herod knew about the Messiah. He knew, he had some expectation Of Messiah, but he had no idea that Jesus had even been born until these guys show up, and he was ignorant of basic prophecy. He didn't know how. Well, how would someone find Messiah? Where would you go to find Messiah if he had been born? The chief priests and scribes, on the other hand, they knew the answer, but they seem to not have made it known, not to have taught it well. You know, I mean, that's just stuff for you know scholars and theologians. Um, it's, it's our specialized knowledge. I mean, if we, if we just tell everybody about this, we're out of a job. You know, we, we, we hold the, all the secrets. Uh, I wonder, though, if you could see yourself in one of these ways, like magi searching for God, a, a vague sense that, that he could help you. I mean, not saying that you're into, into astrology, would not recommend that. Um, I would recommend that you not be into astrology, but, but maybe you do look for signs, I mean, this is why astrology is popular, right? We're, we're looking for something out there that can, that, that can give me some kind of direction, some kind of sense of what's going on in my life. Where, where, where is it headed? How can I find some direction? And maybe you are looking for signs and you, maybe you, you see a beautiful sunset or, or uh, you, uh, there's the perfect timing of, of a phone call from a friend when you were down. Or, or maybe it's just a, a feeling a sense that, that you, you have that's always just lingering, that there's more to this life. And so you, you wander in a search for, well, you, you don't quite know what or whom. But maybe that search brought you here today. Maybe you found us on the internet, and you, you're here in this moment, and you don't even know quite how you got here or where you're going from this point, point and it's just still a little bit unclear. Or, Maybe, more like Herod, you you know about Messiah. You you know about Christ in a a general sense. Maybe that's because you grew up in church a long time ago. You've been in and out over the years. Uh, You know about Jesus from some simple childhood stories, but you don't really know much specifically about what God has said. What the Bible says about him, what God has told us, so that we could know. So we could respond to the Messiah in the right way. Maybe you're here, yet again, like the, the group of scribes and, and priests who, well, you know all about Jesus, in, in, in fact, in quite some detail. You, you could answer all the Bible trivia, but that's all it is to you. Bible trivia. It is possible for God to lead you to himself through signs. That's possible. I believe that. Hence, in creation... Uh, The beauty that is all around us, Psalm 19 says, the heavens declare the glory of God. And that was certainly true for these magi. Or maybe God is using the pain or the ache that you feel right now to, to send you on a search for help, for healing, for wholeness, for him. Your journey to Jesus can begin that way, but this is an important next step. What we're doing right now, opening God's word, carefully listening to the historical record, to the prophetic promises, so that we can respond to the invitation to come, believe, and worship. So if you're coming to Jesus in some sense for the first time or maybe seeking a fresh vision of Jesus, if, if Jesus doesn't seem that all that interesting to you but for, on yet another Christmas this could be the day that you find him in a way that leads you to bow before the king. So look beyond the signs, look beyond, even look beyond the, the decorations, look, look, listen beyond the, the songs that are so familiar, and look to, the, look to God's word and hear what he is telling you about Jesus. So back to our story. Ha- having answered the big question where is the king, we turn to their response when they found him. This is part two. Worship the king. The right response to the Christ is not antagonism or apathy, but rather adoration. The right response to the Christ is not antagonism or apathy, but adoration. Now, right up front, I need to say that this word worship here in the passage, verse 2, verse 8, in this historical context is not limited to the kind of thing that you give to God alone. It's derived from the word for kiss, but it's not, you know, on the lips, romantic, on the cheek, just sort of a greeting. Uh, This is a bowing to kiss the ground or to kiss the, the feet. In other words, just because the wise men say that they want to worship him doesn't necessarily mean that they see this baby as God. This is just how you show proper regard for a king. And that's exactly how it plays out. I mean, they're searching for a king. But then when you see, when the wise men find the infant Jesus, verse 11, they fell down and worshiped him. Obviously not a whoop, trip, fall. Uh, but this is a, an immediate response, quickly lowering themselves to, before the, the majesty that he, may, that he may be seen as the exalted one, that he would be regarded as high and lift it up. And so he's got their attention. He has their adoration. They offer him gifts worthy of a king out of their, out of their treasures. Gold, um, well, that makes sense to us. We, we, know, we think of gold as a, as a treasure. Maybe less appreciation for frankincense and myrrh. What, I mean, what would you do with that? But, but these ointments and spices were highly valuable, highly valuable in the ancient world. And, and since Matthew has already told us that Jesus is, in fact, God with us, that he is God incarnate sent to save us, then, well, it's, it's true that Jesus really does deserve worship in the strongest sense of that word, Word worship. But, but don't go all that way just yet. Just think about Jesus' claim to be king, and this is the response that he deserves from his people. And Then then you've got the striking absence of that worship from Herod and the chief priests and scribes. The wise men? Worship. Herod and scribes? No. Herod's response is antagonism, opposition, and we understand why, right? We've already mentioned this. The tension in the story is that we have two kings. One throne, two kings. So verses 1 and 2, In the days of Herod the king... Wise men from the east come, say, where's the king of the Jews? Two kings. The next sentence, verse 3, when Herod the king heard this, uh, that there's, wh- where's the king of the Jews? When Herod the king heard this, I don't think Matthew needed to repeat in the very next sentence, Herod the king. He's pointing out the inevitable rivalry as Herod inquires about the Christ, the promised king. This coming ruler, uh, in the words of verse 6, that Herod will not tolerate, even though he says, oh, hey, guys, tell me when you find him so I can come worship him too. Mm, not true. So here's more irony. Jesus came as the promised Messiah, the long-awaited king, but instead of being celebrated as the Savior, he is perceived as a threat by the one who now sits on the throne. And with that, we have just tapped into one of the biggest plot lines of the Bible and, and the most important issue for you and me here today. So because Satan's fall uh, from angel to devil was about wanting God's throne. Humankind's fall was about wanting to be our own highest authority. And on the other hand, our, our salvation, our reconciliation to God, our restoration to glory hinges on our submission to to Jesus, acknowledging Christ is Lord. Jesus, you are the King of kings. There is no higher throne. Jesus, you are Lord of my life. You're in charge, not me. Every knee shall bow. Every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. The question is, the the Bible is absolutely true in that every knee will bow. The question for you today is, will you bow? Will you bow before the King? Are you ready to do that? Now, don't forget the, that group of Jewish scholars, the wise men of Jerusalem. They, they knew what the prophet said about where Messiah would be born. They, they heard that others were seeking him, but they apparently did nothing. Was, was that out of fear of Herod? Was that out of wanting to protect their own position of prominence? Um, that, that certainly seems to be what plays out in the, in the rest of the Gospels as the adult Jesus confronts these same groups of leaders Perhaps that's what's going on in this moment, but the, the impression, the, the overall impression we get of their, their brief appearance in this story is, is just apathy. I mean, they know, they know, but they don't care. They don't join the quest. They don't come and worship. They're not, they're not eager to find him. This is the danger uh, for many people in churches today, even for those of us who are in ministry. The, The identity and mission of Jesus just becomes purely academic. It's something we know, but not something that we act on. I mean, we've never stopped believing that it's true uh, we value correct theology. We, we're confident that we're right and we feel pretty good about that, you know? But, it, but, but knowing Jesus, worshiping Jesus is not, it's not personal. It's not passionate. It's not a part of our, our, our quest in life. True worship involves not only submission, but adoration, a bow, and a kiss. We know it's possible to bow before an authority before a leader before a ruler it's possible to bow before someone in authority even maybe just a boss and before someone you don't really like you you can you can bow with gritted teeth and just you know put up with it you can that, but that's not worship that's not serving with love and with joy you can tolerate someone in authority you don't particularly like. You can, you can do your best to just live your own life without any regard for the governor, the president, or whomever that you, you don't care for. But one sign that you do love this king, you don't begrudgingly surrender to him the things that are most valuable to you. You offer your treasures to him as a gift that he is most worthy of. And that's not just about your gold. It's not just about that. It's about all that's yours that's yours that you offer to be his. The things most precious to you, he is worthy of. He is worthy of. And this is the right response to the Christ. The right response to the Christ is not antagonism or apathy, but adoration. The wise men may not have known Jesus as God, but they rightly regarded him as king, and they point us to the kind of genuine worship that he deserves. And that, that really flows right into our last point. This is part three. Who is the king? Who is the king? Both, both prophets and pagans point to Jesus, the one the world is waiting for. The prophets I'm referring to, of course, would be those from the Old Testament, like uh, Micah that's quoted here uh, in verse 6 by the priests and scribes. The the pagans I'm talking about are these wise men, non, non-Jews. And so far as we know, not believers in the God of Israel, though they very well could have had some familiarity with the Jewish religion. Uh, we already noted the irony of the, the adoration of these foreigners when the king of Judea and the religious experts uh, in Jerusalem had little interest, but there's, there's even more going on that I want to highlight in this last part. There's even more that these magi add to the story of Jesus' birth because they connect to another thread in the bigger story that runs through both the Old and the New Testaments. So I already mentioned Daniel as as a sort of a connection, a background to this story. In some sense, one of the magi from centuries earlier but another parallel from a different part of the world is the Queen of Sheba. Do you remember this story from the Old Testament? She had, she'd heard of the glory of King Solomon, and she, uh, tr- uh, David's son traveled from faraway lands bringing incredible gifts to add to the royal splendor of the great kingdom of God, the great kingdom. That was Israel at that time. And on top of those stories like that, Daniel, Queen of Sheba, and others that we could mention, there are prophecies in the Old Testament that speak of Israel's king and ultimately Messiah receiving the worship of the nations. Now, here's, here's one example. Psalm 72, verses 8 to 11. Uh, again, speaking of Israel's king and ultimately Messiah, may he have dominion from sea to sea and from the river to the... Think of the Euphrates. To the ends of the earth may desert tribes bow down before him and his enemies lick the dust. May the kings of Tarshish and of the coastlands render him tribute. May the kings of Sheba and Seba bring gifts. May all kings fall down before him. All nations serve him. Now, I could give you a whole list of passages like this. Just one more. Isaiah 60 verses 1 to 3. Arise. Shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. For behold, darkness shall cover the earth, and thick darkness the peoples. But the Lord will arise upon you, and his glory will be seen upon you. And nations shall come to your light, and kings to the brightness of your rising. That sounds like the star, but more importantly, more important than the star, was Jesus the star one day, Messiah will rule the world, and all nations, all kings will serve him. And that has begun to be fulfilled with the coming of the Magi. See, when, By the way, seeing the Magi as something of a partial fulfillment of these passages in the Old Testament is, was seen by the church as early as, at least according to the, the record we have, uh, as two, A.D. 225, one of the early church fathers, calling these wise men kings. You still see that idea carried forward in our old Christmas carol, We Three Kings. Now, the three is just an an inference because of the three gifts. We don't know how many wise men there were. There were gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Hey, three guys, there you go. Um, We don't know that they were kings either, but they were at least royal advisors, royal representatives, perhaps, but god 's plan for Messiah seems to be coming about. May all kings fall down before him. All nations serve him and Beyond the Old Testament expectation of foreign royalty coming to Messiah, the thread that thread of Gentiles coming to Jesus is right here in Matthew. I mean it starts here, but then it goes on. The Magi are just first of many examples in this book here 's another from chapter eight when When a Roman centurion comes to Jesus asking him. Jesus, would you please heal my servant who is a, a, about to die? And Jesus says, Truly I tell you, with no one in Israel have I found such faith. I tell you, many will come from east and from west and recline at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. And folks, that's not kicking Jews out. That's welcoming Gentiles in to a seat at the table with the Jewish Messiah, with Israel's Savior. And now, now you, you could keep going through Matthew and see in chapter 10 where he says uh, to his 12 disciples, go nowhere among the Gentiles, enter no town of the Samaritans, but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel and proclaim as you go, saying the kingdom of heaven is at hand. But what do we see at the end of Matthew's gospel? The, the book end to this story? All authority in heaven on earth has been given to me. Therefore go and make disciples of All nations. All nations. So the story of Jesus began with a surprising, uh, a surprising story of unexpected visitors from foreign lands who are seeking Israel's king. Matthew's gospel ends with, with Jesus sending out, sending out his followers from Israel to make more disciples to follow him from all over the world. This Messiah who came from tiny Bethlehem of Judah, who came to shepherd his people Israel, Will one day rule the world, and that's that. His His kingdom is advancing even now. It's a, a sign, in one sense, of His kingdom advancing, is us being here today, lifting up the name of Israel's savior and the, the savior of the world, the promised one. It's quite a story. It doesn't end until it reaches you. This, the, the nations coming to Jesus, that's kind of an abstract idea. Like, yeah, something international, an international movement of whatever. Like, okay, that's, that might be interesting, but what about you? Uh, it, it's, this is, this is, should get us over the hump of like, well, is this story just about ancient Israel and politics and religion? No, it's about something that started there and by God's purpose and plan has spread and moved and traveled until yes it has reached here and it's still moving and the the issue is if it's reached you today what are you going to do with it you, the information where is where is the king of the jews we're we're going we're going to worship him and do we uh, like oh do we put our guard up like ah uh, uh, i'm not i'm not I'm not on board with that or do we like yeah yeah i know i've heard that story it's jesus we, we talk about this every year. Whatever. Or do we say, we gotta go. We gotta find him. And if you found him today, I pray that it would not be something that, that leaves you casual, leaves you unaffected. But in some way, we come again to Jesus and again we fall down. Not as some incident or accident, but quickly bowing before this king because he is God because he is our savior because he is the one who has been a part of God's plan all along to bring his glory his salvation to the ends of the earth the question is will we bow before him today that's what, that's what we're trying to do what we're trying to be as a church as a community of believers knowing loving serving Christ as our King and Lord. We, we'd love to have you be a part of this family, not just, uh, yeah, I'll, I'll join this community organization. No, we're, we're trying to be a people that are passionate about Jesus. We'd love to have you join with that same faith, with that same hope, and with that same joy as we go to him and worship every day. Let's pray. Father, as we are bowed together in this quietness. I'm praying on behalf of each one here. I'm asking that you would be at work. Maybe you you, you began with some kind of sign that prompted someone to move today, to get out of bed and to get here, that that prompted somebody uh, beyond their understanding to find this video on the internet. We pray that... That now, by your word, you would speak very clearly, very directly, and by your spirit to move in us, to give us the hearts to believe, the hearts to trust, the hearts to receive, and the hearts to celebrate. God, would you do that? I pray that we would continue in the joy of worshiping our Savior, the King that you sent for us. And while we live in this world that is in so many ways uh, still resisting your authority, we pray that we would see your kingdom grow and extend and move among us and within us for the glory of your name. And we pray this in the name of our King, Jesus. Amen.